Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28-30 Dear Lord, many things in this life seek to rob us of peace. Cultural division, tragic events, and the continued struggle to get by weigh us down like chains around our shoulders. Today we come before you with troubled hearts, weary minds, and restless souls. We desperately crave the peace and the rest that you have to offer. Lord, we don't pray that you would take us away from the struggles of life, but rather, would you calm our souls, steady our feet so that we can walk boldly in the midst of it all. We are all burdened, but the path you have laid before us is teeming with life, refreshment, and strength. Renew us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Welcome to Pray News, where hope is our only bias. Today's news at a glance, the GOP finally voted in a new speaker, Mike Johnson, ending a dramatic gridlock. A tragic mass shooting in Maine has left 18 people dead, and we bring on a guest to discuss the critical election in Argentina. Today we explore some dark topics. As a Christian publication, you would think that we would only want to focus on Christian news or positive news, but that's not the gospel, is it? Jesus was no stranger to tragedy, nor did he shy away from tough topics. The gospel is about shining a light in dark places, dealing with tragedy, and offering hope to people in despair. We want people to be fully informed on what's happening in the world, but transformed and mobilized by the hope of God's word. Thanks for joining us today on Pre News. We hope it leaves you informed and transformed. If Pre News has brought value to your day, consider leaving us a review. Here's one from Mandy. Grateful for this take on the news, it's become a stanchion of my morning routine. I've left other conservative news sources because there's no call to action. As believers, our call to action is to pray, as Jesus always went to pray. Our high priest and example. Thank you. You're welcome, Mandy. Thanks for your kind words. Today, let's all aim to be people of action, prayer, and relentless hope. This podcast was recorded on Thursday at 2.30 p.m. Pacific Time. Things may have changed since the last recording. Before we get to today's first story, let's hear a word from these sponsors. In an unexpected but decisive move, the Republican Party has installed Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson as the new Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, signaling a pronounced rightward shift in the GOP. Johnson, a notable ally of former President Trump, won the speakership after a tumultuous three-week internal battle that paralyzed the legislative work and saw the ouster of prior Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Johnson's victory raises significant questions about the direction of the Republican Party and where is it headed and the potential implications for a deeply divided nation. First, let's begin with the good news. The GOP is no longer in gridlock. No matter where you fall in the political spectrum, lacking a speaker meant a halt in necessary legislative action. The country is embroiled in several conflicts, including posturing in the Middle East in solidarity with Israel and continued funding to Ukraine, not to mention the looming possibility of a government shutdown in November. After nearly a month of infighting, indecisiveness, and ineptitude, the GOP has finally landed on somebody. In a fractious contest, Johnson, who is relatively new to Washington landscape, bested the nominations of other senior Republican leaders, including the third-ranking Republican leader Tom Emmer of Minnesota. The latter had strained relations with Trump due to his decision to certify President Joe Biden's election victory in 2020. It's worth noting that Johnson himself had been an ardent supporter of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results, therefore garnering loyalty with Trump and gaining him favor with his supporters in the House. That's how he got voted in. 
Johnson, who first stepped into Congress in 2016, the same year Trump was elected as president, emerged as speaker with one of the least amounts of Washington experience in recent history. His relative inexperience, however, did not deter him from articulating a staunch conservative vision. In a House floor speech outlining his priorities, Johnson invoked his religious faith as a pledge to maintain a conservative agenda while acknowledging the need for compromise in lawmaking. We have to sacrifice sometimes our preferences because that's what's necessary in a legislative body, but we will defend our core principles to the end, Johnson emphasized. The Louisiana congressman is already facing the gravity of his new position. A temporary spending plan he supported to keep the government running expires on November 17th. Johnson's budgetary advocacy largely leans towards fiscal conservatism. He once referred to the federal government as a monster that should starve. Perhaps a good way to starve a monster is to give all the food away. Further complicating the situation, Johnson was willing to consider President Biden's request for more funding to aid in Ukraine and the conflict with Russia, despite having previously been skeptical about such aid. Given the growing global crises and U.S. interests abroad, this stance may draw difficult attention. The Speaker has strong ties to Christian conservatives, a relationship that predates his political career. Before joining elective politics, he worked as a senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom, an advocacy group supporting traditional family values. He has defended Louisiana's ban on same-sex marriage and sponsored religious freedom proposals at the state level that drew both acclaim and controversy alike. Johnson's views on issues like abortion are also deeply rooted in his personal life and story of faith, much like former Vice President Mike Pence. Democrats, for their part, remain skeptical that Johnson's leadership will bring about any significant change in the GOP policies. Different waiter, same menu, quipped Representative Jim McGovern of Massachusetts, the top Democrat of the House Rules Committee. The election of Mike Johnson as the House Speaker opens up a new chapter not only for the GOP but also for the nation at large. As people of faith, we understand that leadership carries with it an enormous responsibility. The Bible reminds us in Proverbs 29, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. It is incumbent upon us, therefore, to pray for wisdom and righteousness for our leaders, not to root for their despair. For them to govern with a sense of justice, compassion, and integrity is the benefit to our country and our families. Johnson's rise also brings with it many questions about the role of faith in public life. It's a reminder that political power should be wielded carefully and ethically. The influence of Christian values on lawmaking can be a force for good, advocating for religious freedom and helping the vulnerable and promoting justice. Still, it could also become divisive if imposed without nuance or compassion. There are numerous challenges ahead, but it remains to be seen whether Johnson's leadership will navigate the GOP and the nation towards unity or further deepen existing divides. In times of such uncertainty, we turn to prayer, asking God to guide our leaders and our nation towards paths of righteousness and peace. So let's do just that. Heavenly Father, we lift up our nation and its leaders in prayer, especially the newly elected speaker, Mike Johnson. May he lead with wisdom, integrity, and a sense of justice that serves all Americans, irrespective of their political beliefs. Grant him the discernment to balance core principles with the necessity of compromise, and may his acting contribute to healing the divisions in our country. We pray the same for all of our politicians. No matter where their faith journey is, no matter what political affiliations they have, they're in charge of a lot of things, and we pray that you would give them supernatural wisdom, guidance, and temperance in these tumultuous times the world finds itself in. In Jesus' name, amen. A tragic series of events unfolded in Lewiston, Maine, leaving at least 18 people dead in what has been declared the deadliest mass shooting of 2023. 
According to federal law enforcement officers, the massacre occurred across several different locations, notably at a local restaurant and another bowling alley. The local police have identified a person of interest in this calamity, 40-year-old Robert Card, a trained firearms instructor with known mental health issues. Starting shortly before 7 p.m. on Wednesday, the violence erupted and instigated a widespread manhunt that compelled Lewiston residents and neighboring Lisbon residents to shelter in place. Law enforcement mobilized hundreds of officers for the investigation, and the local sheriff's department released pictures of an individual brandishing a semi-automatic rifle near the bowling alley. Governor Janet Mills and President Joe Biden have been briefed on the situation. Schools and city offices in the affected areas are closed, and a news conference is expected to further clarify the unfolding events. As it stands at the moment, Thursday, October 26 at 2.30 p.m., 40-year-old Robert Card has yet to be found. Robert Card, described by his sister-in-law Katie as a wonderful, loving person, is now at the center of an investigation. According to circulated law enforcement bulletins, Card has had mental health issues in the past. This information raises an unsettling question that reverberates far beyond the boundaries of this specific event. How does society address the complex relationship between mental health and acts of mass violence? Mayor Jason J. Levisk spoke outside the reunification center set up for the affected families. It's just a shock, he said, underscoring the deep emotional toll that this has taken on the community. This was not an isolated incident, but a staggering tragedy that has plunged a peaceful city into inexplicable sorrow and prompted a nationwide reflection on the issues of gun violence and mental health. As we grapple with this heartbreaking incident, it becomes crucial to address this from a biblical lens. The story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 is a foundational story to understand spiteful acts such as mass shootings. Some people feel as though they've been robbed of a blessing. They believe they deserve more in life but haven't received it, just like Cain thought he deserved a greater blessing for his offering to God. But if left unchecked, that bitterness towards God and life can stew into an evil hatred. Cain gave into that hatred and sinned, and he killed his innocent brother. This is what happens in these mass shootings. They have a different brand of evil. They aren't just acts of they aren't just acts of revenge to a specific person who wronged them. Rather, they're at innocent bystanders, people who didn't know Card at all. The killings of innocents seem senseless, but there is some twisted logic to it. You can't hurt God, but maybe you can hurt those he loves. And that's because killing innocents is actually an act of hatred against God, life, and existence itself. Additionally, the mental health crisis in America has been simmering beneath the surface for decades and it's beginning to boil over. It is a silent epidemic that goes unnoticed until tragedy of this scale brings it to the forefront of our collective conscience. And if we're not careful, we'll forget about it until it happens again. At Pray.com, we are passionate about helping people find mental and emotional rest in Christ. We've developed an app with the purpose of bringing prayer, meditation, and reflection right to people's pockets. The gospel calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, but how often do we extend this love and understanding to the invisible sufferings of this world? Mental health, often stigmatized and misunderstood, is as crucial to a person's well-being as physical health. Jesus ministered to the sick and oppressed and those suffering from ailments that society did not understand. He reached out to the margins of society where people struggled in the shadows. Today, those struggling with mental health issues often find themselves in modern-day margins, isolated and misunderstood. It's imperative that we incorporate mental health into our conversations, prayers, and actions when it comes to a church body. Let's be safe havens and listening ears to those who are clearly suffering, offering the wise counsel of the Lord, a listening ear, and an empathetic hand on the shoulder.
This tragedy serves as a distressing reminder that we have much work to do as the church. It challenges us to face the complexities of human psychology, social ethics, and spiritual values. Only by acknowledging that mental health is a critical part of the human experience can we hope to prevent such devastating acts in the future. So with all this being said, let's lift this up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we bring before you the families who have lost loved ones in this terrible tragedy. Be with them in their pain and grant them peace that surpasses all understanding. We also lift up those struggling with serious mental health issues. Provide them with the help and support that they need to flourish. May we as a society find the wisdom and the will to address the root causes of such devastating acts in hopes of preventing them in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. The Argentine presidential elections have taken a dramatic turn, marking another chapter in a nation fraught with economic challenges and a clamoring for change. The runoff pits Javier Millet, a libertarian economist, against Sergio Massa, Argentina's center-left economy minister. The New York Times has provided five compelling takeaways from the campaign thus far. Here, we will explore them alongside a special interview from Juan, a Pre.com team member and a citizen of Argentina. The first takeaway is Millet's unexpected weakness. The election results put Javier Millet in a much weaker position than anticipated. Hyped as the frontrunner, Millet was banking on a first-round win, but ended the night with almost exactly the same percentage of votes as he had in the primary. Millet's policy proposals, notably his plan to abolish the nation's central bank and switch to the U.S. dollar, have garnered much attention. However, his aggressive political style has seemingly backfired. Argentines desperately want change, but there's not enough demand for that brand of conservatism right now. The Argentine voters find themselves at a crossroad. Millet's brashness, although initially appealing to his base, has seemed to alienate the crucial centrist voters that he's going to need in order to win. The Argentine people are desperate for change, but they also require stability. They face an existential question. Is Millet's radical path the change they desire, and is he going to be worth the risk? The second takeaway is the power of Peronism, which is the dominant party in the area. Contrary to expectations, Sergio Massa captured the Peronist party's traditional power. Massa, an experienced political player, took full advantage of the Peronist machinery that swung into action on election day, where overall voter turnout surged to nearly 78%, which is wild in any given election. Political scientist Maria Esperanza Casuo summed it up by saying Peronism got scared and acted much more unified. Peronism has long been the dominant force in Argentine politics. Massa, in tapping into his wellspring of support, has shown that tradition is still considerable and holds weight in Argentine politics. But the big question remains, can this old-school political strategy deliver the change the country urgently needs? We're beginning to see a picture of the political landscape. Do you go with the edgy provocateur that offers radical ideas and possible radical positive change but holds risks? Or do you go the safe route, but that safe route contributes to the corruption and all of the bad policies that have been made thus far? The third takeaway is economic policies, a double-edged sword. Both candidates propose economic solutions that carry risks. Massa has passed several policies designed to bolster his electoral chances, such as tax returns for certain workers. Conversely, Millet's more radical suggestions, like dollarization, have economic analysts a bit worried. Argentines find themselves stuck between a rock and a hard place. While Massa's policies may yield short-term benefits, critics argue that they can deepen Argentina's economic troubles. Millet, despite his inexperience, offers an alternative, but at the potential cost of even more significant economic destabilization. The fourth takeaway is Bullrich's voters, the swing factor. 
With Patricia Bullrich, a right-wing former security minister, knocked out of the race, her substantial voter base has become the wild card and up for grabs. Many of her supporters are unlikely to switch to Masa due to their aversion to the failed policies, yet others, particularly centrist, might find Millet too extreme. As the runoff approaches, where Bullrich's 6.2 million voters go could tip the scales dramatically. Both Masa and Millet face the task of wooing these swing voters, a population segment whose decisions could very well determine Argentina's future. The last takeaway is that the race is still open. Both Millet and Massa took a shot at moderation in the post-election speeches, leaving doors open for alliances with parties eliminated in the first round. The Argentine populace stands on a precipice, with both candidates having serious drawbacks. In the midst of our analysis of the Argentine elections, we had the privilege of speaking with Juan, our project manager for Prey.com, who works remotely in his home country of Argentina. Juan's insights reveal the depths of a collective sentiment that goes beyond the election polls and media coverage. They are a piercing look at the lived reality for many in Argentina. I actually don't align myself with any political party. My only assumption given the history and the current environment, is that corruption just appears inevitable, regardless of who takes office. It's a bleak perspective, one that many Argentines echo. The notion of corruption as a public secret runs deep in Juan's narrative, painting a landscape where even those charged with protecting the public are a part of the malaise. Juan ranks in the top 5% in income, but to add context to that, a mere 1500 a month puts you in the top 10%, shining a light on Argentina's economic state. I've always been very entrepreneurial-minded, blessed with enough income to live a very comfortable life by normal standards. Yet, even in this relative financial stability that I have, I don't have a shield from the stark reality. There is no such thing as security here whether it's the police chiefs in collusion with criminals or a system that seems beyond repair, safety to me becomes a personal endeavor rather than a public service. Juan expanded on the growing concern that safety is an ethereal idea rather than an attainable goal. The reason? Those with the badges aren't the ones actually in charge. Now, it's easy to point fingers at countries like the U.S. for their flaws. But in my homeland, I think the waters are even murkier. There is a silent acknowledgement that those in power are corrupt. And in a twisted irony, those sworn to protect us are often in league with the very threats that we fear, from drug lords to gangs. And when those guardians of society are compensated with a paltry 200 bucks a month, can we truly blame them for succumbing to the allure of the dark side? Especially when the alternative is facing off with individuals raking in hundreds of thousands. Juan, despite being well off by Argentine standards, sees the dilemma as fundamentally unsolvable within the current framework. The system's checks and balances are flawed, just to say the least. It's as though corruption is an inherent part of societal fabric here. There is no future in this country the way things are going right now, and I'm working really hard to live. Juan's perspective isn't nihilistic. It's a pragmatic understanding birthed from years of watching his country reel in corruption. When asked about the election, he offered his thoughts. 
Our political options boil down to two untenable choices. On one hand, we have the notorious Peronist faction, whose history with corruption and promotion of ignorance is infamous. And on the other, there is a wild car challenger, fueled more by memes and resentment towards the Peronist party than a clear political vision. Millet might lack the stability and influence needed to actually bring any genuine change. His criticism doesn't just stop with the politicians. The paradox of choice in the upcoming runoff, according to Juan, extends to a more existential problem. If you're not wealthy, honestly, suffering is your only option. And even if you're wealthy, you better live under the radar because crossing paths with the pervasive machinery of corruption means you'll either have to join in or face dire consequences. The weight of Juan's words are heavy, but invaluable for understanding the complex emotions many Argentine voters must navigate. As we watch the two candidates vie for the presidency, many in Argentina, like Juan, are left pondering if their vote can bring forth any sort of change that they desperately seek, or if it will only serve to perpetuate an already broken system. Laura, another resident of Argentina and more left-leaning in Argentine politics, gave a statement that was more relatable to Americans at this moment than some would like to admit. We had a translator give Laura's statements here. Regarding the elections, I believe, as almost everyone has said, that the vote in these elections was not about voting out of conviction but out of anger. I think people no longer vote for ideals or to change reality simply because things are getting worse every time. We can only think about surviving, and it's getting harder to live peacefully, let alone indulge oneself or go on vacation. Nowadays, a large part of the population can't even dream of owning their own home. So how are they going to think about ideals? Daniela, Laura's sister and a proclaimed centrist, added this. We vote for the one we believe is the lesser evil. I do notice that people vote to look after their own patch of land without thinking about those who have less and could be more adversely affected. And people vote without remembering what happened in the past. It seems like the United States and Argentina may have more in common at the moment than we'd care to admit. It's clear that as the candidates move to moderate their stances in the coming weeks, appealing to both ends of the political spectrum, they have not just policies to clarify, but a deep-rooted skepticism to address. For many Argentines, the question is less about who will win, but whether the winner can transcend the deeply ingrained issues that plague this beautiful yet troubled land. And so we pray for wisdom for the Argentine voters as they make this crucial decision for their nation's future. Let's close our time together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we lift up the people of Argentina during this pivotal time. May they be granted the wisdom to choose a leader who will serve justly and work diligently to address the myriad of challenges facing their nation. We pray against cynicism and a sense of hopelessness among the people. We also pray for all those in the country who are struggling under the weight of corruption, economic instability, and disillusionment. May they find hope and a path towards a brighter future. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today on Pray News. It is our aim to be informed and transformed. We pray today you would proceed with hope, love, and determination to be a force for good. If you've enjoyed this take on the news, consider writing us a review and share your experience. You can sign up for our newsletter at PrayNews.com. There you'll find sources to all of our reporting. And be sure to download the Pray.com app to make prayer a priority in your life and experience the Bible in new and exciting ways. God bless.